Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, the show where we question all of your assumptions about culture, like that Journey is better than Toto, where better really has nothing to do with being fundamentally good. Toto's kind of great. I went to see them both in Philadelphia last week, don't ask, and I won't hold you back made me actually tear up, where Don't Stop Believin' made me want to black out, like Tony Soprano. Thanks a million for the wicked listens and feedback on the last three episodes. My interview on not loving your job with Sarah Jaffe, on how yoga turned MAGA with Matthew Remsky, and on why now is a great time to read Ulysses with my dad, James Heffernan. Today we're talking diet culture. That's right, the exotic practice known to many Western cultures of willfully shrinking one's own human body using forced starvation, running in terror when nothing's chasing you, and the bone-breaking practice of picking up heavy weights only to put them back down again. Years ago, I was studying the history of the idea of optimization, a word used so often in diet and productivity culture. And I found my way to Stalin. Joseph Stalin devised a formula to leverage Russian humans in Soviet days to get them to do the most factory work, to optimize them. And his formula was min food, max work. Got it? Minimum food, give them as few calories as possible, and max work, work them as hard as possible, just shy of killing them. Min food and max work sound familiar? Min food is like the once daily rice, mustard, and iceberg lettuce regime of my adolescence. And max work, well, that's max work outs, which we do for no money. It's like we've been making our own personal gulags. I mean, I'm not sure if with Russian forces bombarding Ukraine, it's the right time to bring this up, but I think it is. The inspiration or model for Vladimir Putin is almost certainly Stalin, and Putin's appetite for mass casualties may very well be similar. Let's hope Ukraine, Europe, and the U.S. can keep holding Putin off from complete occupation. The least we can do today is confront the horrors of min food and max work regimens here at home. Anorexia, orthorexia, and other extreme eating disorders can be fatal, we know that. But nearly all of us, of all ages and genders, suffer from some kind of disordered eating. 
And we have serious suffering around the treatment of our bodies. Internalized fat phobia, weight stigma, overexercise, and restrict binge cycles affect all of us and can have adverse health and mental health effects that far eclipse the consequences of simply having a bigger body. I have the perfect guest to discuss this with today. She's Reagan Chastain, illustrious speaker and writer on the subjects of weight stigma and weight neutral health. Reagan, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited today. I can't wait to talk to you. I am going to start by telling you, I don't want to bore you, but I'm going to tell you the very quick story of my own anti-diet project. Okay. Oh, no, do tell me. I love these stories. I mean, they're so good, right? Um, Basically, after four decades of restricting what I ate, sure, because I'm a normal American lunatic, um, and panicking about food and my body, I stopped cold turkey four years ago. So when I stopped restricting and worrying... I gained a little weight, then I lost a little weight, and now I can say I actually don't worry, I don't binge, and I'm much happier and more active than when I was trying to shrink myself. And I also can't believe I used to diet and make a fetish of weight loss. Like, it just seems weird. And I do see that other people are still at it, and I can't help thinking that we've got one chance on Earth, and really, we should spend it body shrinking So you've been a leader in enlightening the rest of us about the time, money, health we're squandering in diet culture. Give me a quick rundown of your work um, and if you like your own evolution. Um, So yeah, I grew up kind of a bigger kid, but I was also always an athlete. And so I think I didn't get as much body shaming as I might have. Um, And I uh, ended up my junior year of high school. My friend's well-meaning mom said to me, like, you want to lose that weight before college, right? Like, you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And that sort of set off a, a switch a switch flipped in my brain, essentially. And while I hadn't really thought about dieting much before, I really pretty soon wasn't thinking about anything but dieting. Mm-hmm. Devolved into an eating disorder, um, collapsed on a treadmill, was taken to a hospital, had a chance to rethink what I was doing, and had an incredibly atypical fast recovery from my behaviors. But while I was being treated for this eating disorder, I was still being told by doctors that I was too big that I needed to lose weight to be healthy, which is a thing that really shouldn't happen and happens, unfortunately, far too often I hear from people. And so I remember distinctly a doctor saying, I mean, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're just a naturally bigger person. So you're going to have to worry about this your whole life. Mm. And what I wish I had heard was you're a naturally bigger person, but Mm. I did not at that time. And so I went for a period of years uh, yo-yo dieting and I would like lose weight short term, gain it back long term, no matter what, and then try something else. And so at some point about 20 years ago, I was like, all right, let's do the research. Let's do a literature review, figure out the best diet, Hmm. the one that works the most. And let's do that. Hmm. And did my literature review was so like shocked and dismayed and disbelief and defensive that I did it all again a second time. Hmm. And what I found was that there wasn't a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were actually succeeding at significant long-term weight loss. And success was often five pounds. Hmm. Which like, not for nothing, I could lose five pounds with a loofah and a haircut right now. <laughs> Wait, a, a loofah? A loofah? Like a say? good, strong loofah <laughs> and a haircut. I feel like I totally. could. So yeah, so being a fan of math and logic, I was like, well, what else is there? And so I started into research around and discovered that, you know, behaviors and weight neutral health interventions were a much better way to support my health, which with much fewer harms. And I was doing this before I had even 
like learned that there was incredible community that had been doing this for years before I was born. Um, and I was also ballroom dancing at the time. And so I had started ballroom dancing as an adult. And I had these experiences where judges were just saying things like such a waste of talent at your size. Hmm. After just a few competitions, a judge kind of pinned me against an elevator and told me repeatedly that she couldn't stand to look at me because my arms were bare in my dress. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, I had, I've always been an activist. I staged my first protest in kindergarten. I've always been someone who, if I thought something wasn't fair, I was going to tell the most powerful person I could get to listen to me about it. So I had, and in college, I came out um, as queer in like the mid nineties in Texas, which was an interesting time and place to be coming out. Sure. And I had really like cut my teeth as a social justice activist doing like queer and trans activism, anti-racism work, but I'd never thought of fat people as this group of people who were being systemically and structurally oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so standing there against that elevator with that judge, like, you know, pointing at me, I realized like I wanted to be a fat dancer and I was going to have to be a, a fat activist to get that done. And so I started dances with fat, started writing, and that's kind of how I then eventually became a full-time speaker and writer on this topic. Right. Dances with Fat is your blog, which you started, as all good bloggers did in the early 2000s. So people pretty regularly define themselves or identify as fat and use the word fat without inhibition. But wasn't it once considered some kind of insult? And was it hard for you to own that word? It wasn't. I think because of the parallels, and I would never like compare them directly because all oppressions have different come from different places, privileged and oppressed differently. But as a queer person, I had adopted the word queer. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, I had rejected the idea of conversion therapy as a a solution, quote unquote, to homophobia. And so as a fat person, I was like, I, you know, this is a way I can tell my bullies they can't have my lunch money anymore. Like you cannot offend me by correctly describing my body. Yeah. I yep. won't have shame about that. And I'm not interested in dieting any more than I was interested in conversion therapy. And they both have roughly the same success rate, which is pretty much zero. And they both do a lot of harm. That is an interesting parallel I hadn't heard. Um, so what do we mean when we say diet culture? So when we talk about diet culture and the failure of dieting, a lot of times there's a misconception that we're just talking about like fad diets or radical diets. It's really any attempt to att- intentionally manipulate the body to be smaller Um, Because we believe that a smaller body is better, either healthier or more beautiful, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so diet culture is the culture that has sprung up giving fealty to that concept that a smaller body is a better body. Mm -hmm. Um, And it drives an incredible amount of money to the diet and other related industries, an incredible amount of harm to the people who are targeted for these interventions. I remember this episode of the 70s show called Eight is Enough, where two sisters of roughly the same size, one of them decided she needed to be a little bigger and the other one decided she needed to be a little smaller. And so one of them had an extra cookie and one of them had one less cookie. And that was the whole episode and their bodies (laughs) changed in some way. But it, it seemed to be something people could take or leave. You weren't constantly thinking about this one thing. You know, sometimes you talked to thought about your hair and mascara, right? Like, you know, <laughs> important things. But I mean, and then that changed with and and then health started to be oriented around it. Um, and now most of us have a hard time remembering when there wasn't this unnatural alignment of health and thinness. How did that happen? I mean, I guess maybe you could start to the origins of the so-called BMI. 
Yeah, so I want to start by being really clear that the origins of weight stigma, BMI, these concepts are uh, rooted completely in racism and white supremacy Mm -hmm. and inextricable from it, such that it's to this day does a disproportionate amount of harm to people of color and in particular black people. And I cannot recommend enough Sabrina Strings' Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast, uh, The Politics of Anti-Batness as Anti-Blackness to understand that relationship and the way that this all stems from uh, racism and white supremacy. BMI in particular was the 1800s, a statistician named Ketelet who was trying to figure out like the every man, ideal man. And he was pretty sure it was a white dude because that's all he tested. And so BMI is just a little slightly complicated height and weight ratio and of his shortcomings and issues and oppression. And there are many, Ketelet was not trying to come up with a health measurement. He was also measuring things like the distance between the elbow and the wrist. Like he was Mm. looking at all these structures of the human body, but only in European white men. Uh, And so what happened was this became adopted uh, through the health insurance uh, industry to be used as sort of a cheap proxy for health. They were looking at a way to um, striate people for who to charge more. Mm -hmm. And pre-Obamacare, when they were allowed to... uh, decline coverage for pre-existing conditions, Mm -hmm. they were allowed to consider a high BMI of pre-existing conditions. So for about 14 years, I couldn't get health insurance because my existence was considered a pre-existing condition for which it was legal for health insurances to deny me coverage. Wow. And so one thing I think about when we look at the health outcomes of, of fat people, and we always just blame any negative health outcome on the size rather than like weight stigma, weight cycling, healthcare inequalities, or the fact that like we couldn't get insurance for decades prior to the Affordable Care Act. So that has sort of been the way that BMI got introduced. And in then weight loss companies started to realize how much more money could be made if they could turn themselves into health companies. And so they mm-hmm. really... Um, wheedled their way into the healthcare industrial complex. And a good example in 1998, uh, the NIH had a committee that recommended that the numbers for BMI be actually lowered. And this is important to understand. People act like BMI is incredibly scientific and, you know, it's, it's really not. And it's been malleable. And so this committee and seven of the nine members had ties to the diet industry. The chair was a former director and current executive board member of Weight Watchers. Mm-hmm. And they recommended that the BMI numbers be lowered so that about 29 million Americans became, quote unquote, overweight or obese literally overnight. And then they had a whole PR campaign the next day about how tens of millions of Americans didn't know they were overweight and offered their products to, quote, solve this, quote, problem. So that is just one of the many examples of how the diet industry has really injected themselves into healthcare to the detriment of higher weight people. I mean, it it seems like it's a fake disease. It's like halitosis or whatever that, you know, the made up (laughs) thing for bad breath just sounds complicated. And like an an index, man, what an index Mm -hmm. sounds like science to me. Um, How does fat phobia feed into diet culture? How does it actually really inform a whole industry. Yeah, so this idea that a thinner body is a better body, this harms people of all sizes, but it does the most harm to the people of the highest weights and people with multiple marginalized identities. And so it creates, this stigma then creates a tacit permission for lack of accommodation and for inequality. 
So it's this belief that if fatness is the reason that someone is not being accommodated or is being treated unequally, Mm -hmm. that's fair, that's fine, and that they should have to become thin. And that can be in pay. We know that fat people are hired less, paid less, and promoted less Mm -hmm. than thin counterparts. In one study to the tune of $19,000 between Mm -hmm. fat and thin cis women, um, it can be in healthcare, right? The idea when you're told you're too big for the MRI, right? No, no, the MRI is too small for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People my size exist and we deserve, you know, care. And that includes MRIs. And so there's, it's everything in healthcare from, is there a chair in the waiting room that will accommodate us? Mm -hmm. Is there a gown? Is there a blood pressure cuff? It's training, it's research that's only done on thin people. And then when the tools and pharmaceuticals and best practices that that research develops don't Mm -hmm. work as well on fat people, our bodies get blamed. Mm-hmm. So we've got a culture where fat people are told that in order to have equal access, we're responsible for becoming thin. Mm-hmm. And essentially, that's telling us to solve our oppression by changing ourselves to suit our oppressors. You know, I think this with about, you know, when people complain about other people's behavior on airplanes, I think <laughs> they shrunk the size of our seats and and gave us no leg room and then decided that the problem was our bodies and our comportment. Right. Um, I mean, it is impossible to sit with dignity in, you know, maybe for a tiny child um, <laughs> on an overnight flight and coach. You're just misbehaving by simply being in space. The thing about that, it's a really good example. They knew fat people existed when they built those planes, when they made those seats, when they created those policies. And they intentionally tried to make it fat people's problem that they were unaccommodated. Mm. And so then fat flyers are asked to pay twice as much for the exact same service, right? Which is mm-hmm. transfer from one place to another, which requires a seat that accommodates you. And so Southwest is the only airline still in the U.S. that gives a free second and or third seat to people who need it. Hmm. I mean, it's treated just like one ticket. So it can be done. In Canada, there's a law, one flyer, one fare, so that people cannot be charged extra because the arbitrary size of the seat doesn't accommodate them. And I think that's really the only way to go. It's when I, when I talk about privilege, sometimes I talk about like, privilege is looking and saying like, I deserve a seat that accommodates me, but the fat person next to me does not. Hmm. Rather than saying, how come other people aren't getting the same experience I'm getting, which is I can walk onto this plane, sit down and be sure that I won't get kicked off, be charged twice as much or, mm-hmm. you know, be treated poorly by other passengers as if I shouldn't exist at this size on this plane. It's bad enough that people comment on body size at dance competitions and on airplanes. But what happens when your doctor does it? We'll hear why the weight-obsessed healthcare system needs an overhaul after the break. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. 
Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, I'm talking with health at every size activist, Reagan Chastain, about size stigma and weight-neutral healthcare. So you've written about how unjust doctors can be toward fat people and your own experience in medical settings. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so our entire healthcare system is really pitched toward weight loss to the exclusion of everything else, including the evidence. So the research we have shows that, again, weight loss, about 95% of people will gain back the weight they lost. Up to two-thirds will gain back more. Mm-hmm. So that's an intervention that has the opposite of the intended effect the majority of the time. Now, I don't believe being fat is uh, is a medical condition, and I don't believe weight loss is a healthcare intervention. But if we're treating it like that, then mm-hmm. we have to treat it like that. Right. Whereas if we look at the research around healthy uh, behaviors, understanding health is not an obligation, we see that behaviors are a much better predictor of current and future health than is weight or weight loss. Hmm. So the research on this is pretty clear that focusing on supporting fat people's health rather than trying to manipulate their body size provides more benefits with less harm. Mm-hmm. And this research has been around and continues to accumulate since the 50s till now. And so, but our medical system is just stuck. And I've been training healthcare professionals, doctors and allied healthcare professionals since 2009 on this. And I really do see a shift. In 2009, the Q&As were unbelievably hostile and contentious. And now I'm feeling like, and originally I would talk about like patient engagement, like patients feel shamed and they don't come back. And the Mm -hmm. response would be, well, that's on them. Mm. Like if people don't want me to tell them the truth about their size, then like they don't come back and that's not my fault. And so I really changed my early presentations to be, you have an obligation to provide ethical evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. Weight loss doesn't meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. Fight me. (laughs) And so with the Q&As, it became really much more productive for that time because I was like, look, if you're going to argue with me, you better be packing evidence. Like I just gave you evidence for two hours. Mm -hmm. So do not come at me with everybody knows. Mm. You need to have some kind of research to back up what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And now like people are choosing to come to the talks who are Mm -hmm. medical professionals instead of having to be, you know, forced. The Q&As are people are interested. They've heard about this. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the medical system trains healthcare professionals to see fat patients as essentially a walking, talking pathology. Mm-hmm. And so they get so focused. They see that fat person. They're like, I got to make this person smaller, that they forget to support that person to be healthier. They misdiagnoses, early treatment. They delay care like where a thin person would get an evidence-based intervention for their same symptoms. Mm-hmm. A fat person will get a diet which means that now their care is delayed for some indeterminate amount of time while they try to do something and is almost entirely unlikely to succeed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, any kind of uh, harm that will come from that delay of care will get blamed on their fat body. Mm -hmm. So it's a a a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our healthcare system creates weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. And then it blames the harms that come from those on fat bodies. 
Wow. And then it uses those harms to justify more weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. And so it's a cycle that we have got to break in order to actually support the health of fat patients. I, I mean, I think you're right that since 2009, um, we've seen changes. It seems as though sort of 50 percent of the people I know have kind of read the research now and stopped counting calories or dropping carbs or whatever. Um, and the other 50 percent are still exercising like maniacs and doing paleo or whatever. So, so yeah, tell me about what a weight-neutral approach to healthcare looks like. Yeah, and just to kind of add a little to the background. So one of the things I always think is important to understand is that, again, this is harming people of all sizes. And so it drives body dissatisfaction, people of all sizes. But the structural oppression of people at higher weights, often they are denied healthcare because of their weight, right? So people will be denied knee surgery because they'll be told, oh, it's too risky at your size, but then they'll be mm -hmm. recommended weight loss surgery to mm -hmm. solve that. Like it doesn't make any sense at all, right? So there mm -hmm. are people who are engaged in dieting because they are, you know, still enmeshed in diet culture. And then they're engaged in people in dieting because their lives are held hostage by a society and a healthcare system that's rooted in weight stigma. Um, mm -hmm. Often trans and non-binary people will have BMI limits on gender confirming surgeries. Mm -hmm. And so they are forced to decide, are they able to get these surgeries they need that for their physical and mental health and risk their lives and diets and risky interventions, drugs and surgeries to become mm -hmm. thin or do they not? So there's like this huge piece of it. Yeah. So a weight neutral system is pretty simple. Basically, we stop trying to manipulate body sizes and we start trying to support health in people of all sizes. Mm -hmm. And the focus has to be also on not just individual choices, but bringing down barriers to access mm -hmm. and improving social determinants of health, which include everything from clean air and clean water to wages and vacation time to mm -hmm. oppression, right? Racism mm -hmm. is a public health crisis in our culture right now. And we act like often it's just something that, you know, people of color have to deal with on their own. Um, and then increasing access, access to information, access to enjoyable movement, to sleep, to social connection. Wow. And, you know, a lot of people don't have a chance for social connection because they're working three jobs to survive and keep a roof over their head. And, mm -hmm. you know, they don't have access to the food that they would choose to eat, the movement options they'd like to engage in. And so there are all these structural pieces that we need to solve. Mm -hmm. And that should be the focus of public health as opposed to just making fat people's health the public's business. Mm hmm. And yeah. then within treatment, it's about saying, what do we know supports health and giving essentially fat people the same interventions that thin people who have the exact same symptoms are getting? Yeah, I think we've all been doing increasingly esoteric practices to shrink our bodies. Anyone who's ever tried a horrible glass of green juice or some crazy diet where you eat like an ice cube and a piece of cabbage every two days or whatever knows we have complicated ideas of what works for us. If it turns out the best things you can do are a one-size-fits-all initiative, I think that might be a bit disappointing to some people. Yeah, it's so it's such an interesting thing because on an individual level, health is really individualized. Yeah. Right? Different people. We, we kind of like to act like health is something you could like throw a dart and hit, that it's very black and white. Hmm. And in fact, it's really this gooey, amorphous concept. So yeah. the concept of health or being healthy, it's going to be different if someone is born with a chronic condition versus yeah. if they develop a chronic condition later in life versus if they never develop a chronic condition. And so on an individual level, it's important that we're like working with people with their personal priorities and yeah. preferences. 
Yes. Uh, we tend to also act like health is an obligation. Uh, and the Olympics are my favorite time to talk about this because there's a sport called skeleton where you go 80 miles an hour down an ice chute on a sled face first. Like this does not prioritize the health. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Super Bowl is about athletes risking their short and long term physical and mental health in the hopes that they can win shiny jewelry. You're allowed to do that, but it doesn't prioritize the health. And so often this idea of fat people not prioritizing their health or having to prioritize their health in a certain way ends up becoming a way to try to justify fat phobia with healthism. Hmm, mm -hmm. And healthism does not make fat phobia a better look. And so on an individual <laughs> level, health is very different. People's priorities are very different. On a population level, yeah, like single payer weight neutral health care yeah. would change the game. Yes. Right. We have a system where it's, you know, this pay to play system where the the fiduciary responsibility is often to shareholders mm -hmm. of health companies rather than to patients. Mm -hmm. And so this is a huge issue. And so I am a fan of single payer, but I also am clear that if we do single payer in within the guise of this kind of weight loss culture in healthcare, mm -hmm. then if people lose their opportunity, because like I have to try sometimes many doctors. Mm. to get mm -hmm. one who is willing to focus on symptoms and healthcare rather than focusing on body size. A lot of people don't have that luxury. I live in LA. I can buy a doctor a day. There's a lot of them around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but people who, you know, I grew up in incredibly rural America, like people living in Montana where I grew up aren't having that same opportunity. Mm -hmm. So to me, it has to be a single payer weight neutral healthcare system mm -hmm. would be a, a huge game changer on a population basis. And then each individual could be treated based on their situation, their priorities, mm -hmm. et cetera. All right. Yeah, I like that. I want to bring up a word that was meant, I think, as the tide turned on dieting a little bit, was meant to kind of smuggle in diets by another name, and that is the dread word, wellness. Um, mm -hmm. tell, me about, tell me about wellness and why it isn't actually a swerve away from diet culture. Yeah. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the concept of wellness, but if wellness to you means shrinking bodies, then you're still in the weight loss paradigm, mm. right? We hear this a lot. Oh, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. Yes. You change to a lifestyle where you diet all the time. It's the same thing. <laughs> if you're trying to manipulate your body size to be smaller, you're involved in weight loss, intentional weight loss and dieting culture, period. Mm -hmm. And so what the diet industry is doing right now is noticing that the work of people, including, like I said, before I was born, has made a difference and people are starting to notice like, oh my gosh, yeah, right. Like dieting really never works and oh, like healthy behaviors. And so the weight loss industry has become very good at co-opting the language of fat liberation to sell diets. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so you see Weight Watchers, oh, we're not Weight Watchers anymore. We're WW and we're about health now, but every commercial still has weight loss information in it. Mm -hmm. Novo Nordisk la launched a drug that has side effects that include multiple organ failure and increased suicidality and simultaneously launched what they're calling an anti-weight stigma campaign. Uh, first of all, it's hard to say we're against weight stigma, but we want to make millions of dollars trying to eradicate fat people from the earth and we're willing to risk their lives to do it. And then their anti, quote unquote, anti-wasting campaign was literally called It's Bigger Than Me, which like, if your anti-stigma campaign sounds like it was named by a sixth grade bully, probably not that anti-stigma. And their solution to stigma is to lobby Congress to for insurance to have to pay for uh, their drug. Right. You know, as a queer person, you know, who's someone who's both queer and fat, that comparison helps me of like, 
right, we're going to solve homophobia by making people straight. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> if, if we have to kill them to do it, we're anti-homophobia, right? That's <laughs> yes. not actually anti-stigma. So this is what we're seeing more and more. And it's scary because it is insidious. And for people who aren't fully on board, who are just kind of learning about these concepts. And again, it's not like a galloping shock if that's where people are. We live in a culture where a billion dollar industry spends tons of money with the best marketers in the world to make us believe this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to make our healthcare providers believe this stuff. So it's not a shock, but it is really difficult because you'll people will send me, oh, isn't this so great, this anti-stimulant campaign? And I'm like, oh, I hate to like take a pin to your balloon, but not so much. Yeah. So it's not our fault diet culture is so pervasive. I mean, it's been packaged and sold to us for years. But body positivity movements are making things better, right? Maybe not. When we return, we'll hear why all size acceptance movements are not created equal. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, writer and speaker Reagan Chastain is walking us through the far-reaching effects of weight stigma. So tell me about the difference between body positivity and body and weight neutrality or neutrality. Sure. So body positivity was actually created by radical fat activists to be a radical fat activism liberation concept. Got it. And what happened was, it got co-opted over time by kind of chunky white women who can like, if they lean over, they, you know, can make a role and they've learned to love that little role that they can make. And like, I want chunky white women to love themselves. I just don't think they should be first in line. Mm, yeah. And so what happens with this is one, they become the face of this idea of body positivity, which people think is the same thing as fat liberation. Got it. Yeah. And so they uh, tend to crowd out. So they tend to then replicate the problems that fat activism has had since the beginning with racism, transphobia, you know, lack of representation. Um, they also then you'll hear them say things like, I mean, it's OK to be fat as long as mm. as long as you're healthy, as long as you have some type of mobility. And so not only are they co-opting the principle, but then they're shoving out the people for whom the principle was created. Mm. The people with multiple marginalized identities who are facing under Kimberly Crenshaw's um, concept of intersectionality, these multiple uh, oppressions on multiple lines. So the, here's the thing. When I first 
understood from your work, from Christy Harrison, from a bunch of other kind of uh, anti-diet activists and dietitians, anti-diet dietitians, um, the hazards of this stuff and began, began to drop dieting from my life. I was really surprised at how angry it made some people. I really was genuinely shocked. I just thought, oh, this is like, you know, like I just got a Cuisinart and it works well. How about you guys <laughs> want to try it? You know, it makes, makes me really happy. And uh, I stopped talking about it because for some reason, giving up dieting or letting other people not diet is hard to fathom for some of us. I mean, why is it, you know, you lay out the data and you know, just down to diets don't work. And still there's this terror of fat. Yeah, I see it a lot um, in presentations. You know, I'll give a two hour presentation with a ton of research. And then the first question will be like, I can't believe you're so irresponsible to say that all fat people are healthy. And I'm like, that Mm. never happened. Like I'm saying people of all sizes are all over the size spectrum and that weight loss doesn't make people healthier, right? But I think- we have so much personally and everybody's going to be different. So I don't want to speak for everyone's experience, but a lot of people have so much invested, right? So much of their own time and energy and money. Mm -hmm. And so they're not ready to say like, I wasted that, right? They're still throwing good money after bad Mm -hmm. because they're just like, that's where they're at. There are people who have been, you know, misled by people in authority, including healthcare providers, to believe that literally this is the only way you could possibly support your body or health if that's a priority for you is to lose weight. So there are people who are trusting healthcare providers like they should be able to do. And those healthcare providers are trusting research like they should be able to do. Mm -hmm. And the research is being driven by the weight loss industry in ways that, like when I first did my literature review, I I had anger, disbelief, defensiveness, Hmm. um, I was shocked that things that would have gotten me failed as a freshman in research methods class were getting published, you know, in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. And it's it's really insidious. And like I knew there were huge problems with like racism and that kind of representation in research, but I was like surely we can all get together on math. Mm. So I'm not surprised that people are entrenched in this point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to change paradigms in that way and you do want to straddle and be like I mean, there's that, like, I, people should be able to love themselves at any size, but obviously, like, it's not healthy to be fat. And yeah. so, like, that, you know, so that you get that straddling of the paradigm and, you know, where, okay, I think maybe we shouldn't discriminate against fat people, but also I think you can't be fat and healthy, right. you know, or I think that, you know, weight loss works, that kind of thing. So, but I think there's just that defensiveness. There's people with a profit interest in it. There's mm-hmm. people who have invested themselves in it. And then there are people who are deriving privilege. Mm. They've decided they're better than other people because they're not fat. Mm. Mm -hmm. And often they believe that their behaviors are the reason they're not fat, right? They have this idea of fat people behaving in this stereotypical way. And since they themselves don't behave that way, they believe that that's how, that's the reason they're thin. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, something that is a moral victory for them over fat people. And so for them to give up that privilege, that sense of being morally better, Mm -hmm. um, they're not interested in doing that. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned something called enjoyable movement. And I have to say, this is where we get to my own sensitivities. Because you were always an athlete, and I've always had a hard time getting off the couch. So I'm not asking for any sympathy. But one thing I've loved in your work is that even while very enlightened dietitians encourage people to find movement they enjoy and love, 
you recently redefined enjoyable movement. Tell us about this redefinition, because it's so great for listeners like me, for whom joy and exercise are just two words that don't really go together. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always been involved in fitness, and I get a lot of, like, good fatty privilege from that, which is, you know, crap, and I want that to die. Good fatty, uh, but good fatty. I think you've, you can define it for us. What is good sure. fatty? Yeah. So it's this idea there are good fatties and bad fatties, and okay. it comes from uh, Kate Harding's work, this idea that if you do the right things, if you do quote-unquote healthy behaviors, then you're a fat person who deserves better treatment than somebody who doesn't. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, I'm okay with fat people who you know, do healthy things, but not for fat people who like, they're just sedentary and eat all fast food. Mm. Like, first of all, you could divide any group of people into these two pairings, right? Mm -hmm. There are two types of blonde people. There are two Mm -hmm. types of Rotarians, right? So it becomes, (laughs) again, a way to try to justify fat phobia by creating exceptions rather than saying people behave like they behave and everybody deserves being human respect. Um, But with movement, I, to me, it's about nobody's obligated to participate in fitness at all, but everybody should be welcome and on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for some people, joyful movement's where it's at, right? They've always seen movement as punishment for being fat or a way to prevent being fat. And so they're like, oh, I can just do stuff I like. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I really like gardening or dancing around my underwear or powerlifting or whatever sport they find. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with joyful movement, but it's not. I'll have to take your word for it. I'll have to take your word for it. Okay. I, yeah, I get it. Well, and I, like I, as a dancer, I engage in joyful movement as an endurance athlete doing marathons and training for this triathlon. I like medals and they Mm. only hand them out at the finish line. So this is a different thing. It's about accomplishment and doing sports I'm not good at, which I never did as an athlete. I played basketball like once in fifth grade. I sucked. I never played again. But medals, no, I could get into medals. Yeah. 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 So I like medals and, you know, they hand them out at the finish line. So you got to do the race. So Mm -hmm. you got to do the training and like that's, But that, again, that's on my own terms. Yeah. And so one of the things that I find really liberating, because there are people who use movement for um, the health benefits it gives them to help manage chronic conditions, to help with their mental health. And again, Mm -hmm. not saying like ditch your meds and do yoga. I'm just saying like for some people, they find mental health boosts for movement. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of those people, the idea of joyful movement seems like too much pressure. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, like I must be doing it wrong. And now they're back in a toxic relationship with movement. Yeah. And so really, when I say like, look, it's completely acceptable to figure out the thing you hate the least. Love it. And to- Slow down. The thing you hate the least is the exercise. <laughs> Just, yes. This is for listeners. This is a gift. Yes. Whatever kind of movement or movements you can find that you hate the least <laughs> and then doing the bare minimum that you need to get the benefits that you're looking for, that is a totally valid relationship with movement. I got to say, this phrase, this is like, (laughs) this is the just do it of the me community. This is the most inspiring thing I've (laughs) ever heard. I swear, the thing you hate the least is the best. And Reagan, like you have really helped. And I know you have a lot of fellow travelers in this, but you really helped change the direction of the culture around this and been part of that. You know, as you say, health at every size has been an idea for a long time um, and intuitive eating. And yet it has taken, you know, things take a while to take off and inform how we're living. And, you know, I just got to add that embracing or dropping from my idea of what life should be, dropping dieting has, has, caused my mental health and even my and my actual health to soar. That's how it's worked for me. So yeah, like I said, my work stands on the shoulders of and alongside and behind a lot of other people. And there's a lot of privilege and luck that goes into me getting to do what I do. I 
sometimes say I have a dream job that I wish didn't exist mm. because mm-hmm. in the world as it is, like this is the work that I most want to be doing. And I wish this work didn't have to be done at all. Mm-hmm. What I realized was weight stigma is real and it does real harm to me and other people. Um, and so I had a choice. I had spent years fighting my own body on behalf of weight stigma. And what I decided to do instead was fight weight stigma on behalf of my body. And it has been the best decision I have ever made for myself. That's great. Thank you so much for being here, Reagan. So instructive and illuminating. Really grateful to have had you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for sharing your own story and talking about this stuff. I really am grateful. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode about sanctioning the oligarchs in Russia by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please, oh, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It deeply and truly helps other people learn about our show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at thiscriticalpod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... A charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.